What is that? It's a little bag made from the skin of a toad. Doesn't matter. She, she's tampering in dark-sided stuff. Yet in our own supremely rational time, there has been a dramatic rebirth of the ancient arts of witchcraft. You're listening to the Modern Witch Podcast with Devin Hunter. One of the apocryphal texts of Judaism, the Book of Enoch, describes the time before the Great Flood when angels and humankind were mingled. This text dates back to the 3rd century BCE and is a seed script for Kabbalistic and ceremonial workings. Within its pages lies a menagerie of stories pertaining to the fall of the Watchers from the overworld, the Nephilim, and the strange things humanity learned from these angels. According to Abrahamic tradition, this work records the time period just before the first near extinction of the human species, as well as the circumstances that brought it on. During this time, not only was humanity learning from these angels, but we were also mating with them, producing offspring and tainting the human race. The children of such arrangements were known as the Nephilim, great giants who are said to be one of the progenitors of the witch blood. The Book of Enoch gives us an ancient yet intimate introduction to a world long since past. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them, and they taught them charms and enchantments, and the cutting of roots, and made them acquainted with plants, and they became pregnant, and they bare great giants. The angels that are described in the Book of Enoch would later go on to essentially spill the beans about cosmic knowledge, craftsmanship, and witchcraft, and it really ticked heaven off. You can see why these angels would be the ones that John Dee and Edward Kelly would contact and derive a mystical system from in the 16th century. What we refer to as Enochian magic comes from the work of these two gentlemen. However, it was never referred to as such by them— They always referred to this system of magic only as angelic. According to Dee, the magic recorded in their system was supposedly given to biblical patriarch Enoch, but had fallen into wicked hands and then was lost in the great flood. It wasn't until Dee pierced the veil with his piousness and dedication that it reemerged for a newer generation. Dee and Kelly worked laboriously for seven long years, transmitting and then developing this system of magic, which would allow others to contact angels and gain important information that, in theory, could be used on a federal level. From their work, we in modern witchcraft have borrowed a lot, such as the concept of the watchtowers, the four elemental kingdoms and the angels that compose them, which in the Enochian system are actually four magical squares. The practice of invoking guardians in ritual comes from ceremonial magic, which is heavily derived from the work of Dee and Kelly. That is an excerpt from my book, The Witch's Book of Spirits, narrated by James Anderson Foster. You can find it everywhere books are sold and now on Audible and iTunes. The Nephilim are an intricate part of several occult traditions and are credited as the progenitors of the witch power, but still remain little-known figures for many practitioners. We invoke them into our circles, call upon them to bend fate, but do we really know who we are asking to come to our aid? On this episode of the Modern Witch Podcast, I am joined by three of my favorite occultists, Jason Miller, Michelle Boulanger, and Christopher Penzak, for a no-holds-barred discussion on who the Nephilim really are and what we need to know about them. The Nephilim are a complex topic, and no two occultists see them in quite the same light. Are they angels, demons, aliens, something different altogether? My interviews with these experts were candid and personal and go deep into their gnosis surrounding these shadowy figures. While there are elements to our discussions that shed light on the general topic, I think the real gems come from exploring each individual take. I felt an incredible sense of honor to get this candid with three of the leading voices in contemporary occultism, especially about a topic that is so personal. For more information about each of them, be sure to check out the links that I've included in the show notes.
from ancient legend of the books of Enoch, that there was a group of angels who descended to earth in violation of divine law. They introduced to humanity ways, means, knowledge, which we would understand today as science and technology. These angels were in human form. They were called in Hebrew, ishim, which means men. They looked just like us. Part one, inappropriately touched by an angel. The Nephilim are a group of angels, a group of spirits, whether you think of them or angels or not, came down to teach human beings various arts, sciences, etc., etc., in exchange for sex with humans <laughs> is basically how it boils down. Um, now, okay, so let's 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 break that right there. Let's let's break into that. So, what I mean, what in? So I assume this is coming from Enoch. Is... Sure. Yeah. Okay. You know, we, we see a hint of it in Genesis six and we have Enoch that, that kind of fleshes it all out. So I always thought the, the sex was a little bit more, I don't know, romantic. I, 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 <laughs> I just envisioned, I don't know, like these, these human women and, and men, because in, in my visions and the stuff I've done, that was, it was angels are androgynous. They just were wanting to get it on with something physical, but um, I hear that. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. Uh, but so I just imagined that there was like some some you know peasant girl who was collecting wheat, and she goes out and she you know is is um, introduced by fate to this winged hunk, and she falls in love, and then they you know have a kid, and you know so in my mind I guess it was just a little bit more romantic. So what? What makes it more transactional from your <laughs> from your perspective? I guess I don't know. I guess I, I I just see it that way. I I I think I see I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm a big fan of romantic love. Um but I see romantic love as almost a later development of of, of mankind. Um I I I see a lot of I don't know, the early relationships that we see are based in base need for sex and property rights and power and stuff like that. Well, especially back at that time, that was a, a big part right. of human culture. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, you know, it's it's not so much that, I, I mean, there are, there are, of course, people who, who still think of, things in that in that way and i think that part of human advancement uh is getting away from from thinking of things in that way so you know don't don't you know like i said i'm a big fan of of, of love, marriage for love and and uh, people getting together uh romantically uh i guess i the the nephilim never came off like that to me, um, the Nephilim have always been the, the few times that I've, I've worked with the Nephilim and investigated the Nephilim deeply. The Nephilim, they, they come in like gangbusters, um, like a really strong presence. I don't get like a, a big romantic feel off of them, but I could be wrong. <laughs> no i i it's not that i mean i don't know it's not like it's a, a ya novel in my head or anything i just assumed it was it was more i don't know i guess just consensual from that you know hey you're here i'm here you've got you know 72 eyes and 
50 wings and you're a ball of smoke or whatever. Let's get it on. I don't, I just assumed it was, it was more, um, yeah, but whatever. Anyway, so, so we've got, we've got, in my head, it's like, it's like an episode of inappropriately touched by an angel. It's okay. All right. That's totally (laughs) fair. And the other thing with that, I think it, that would also really fit in with a, a lot of the, the beliefs about a lot of divine conception in general, um, it not yeah. it's it's not usually a consensual thing, and usually there's there's some sort of transactionary thing that goes on. So totally, um, okay. So we've got these these beings. So let me ask you this: so we're presented them in certain texts like Enoch um, as they are angelic beings, and so we've got these angels that come down. They mate with with us, right? And they have these offspring. So let's pick up there. So. We've got these offspring um, who become the Nephilim. Is that is that your definition of Nephilim as well? Sure, yeah. Okay. So we've got these Nephilim. Are these literal beings to you? And I ask this because um, my experiences with the Nephilim were that, and I wrote about this in the Witch's Book of Spirits, but were that they, there were Nephilim that were born in the physical world and there were Nephilim that were born and kind of exist in the spiritual world. And from those same interactions, it was just who was mating with who and and what happened out of what. Um, So when I think of, and this plays into like the the theory that we were influenced, we're continuously possibly influenced by them. Um, So we've, you know, you can have these, in my view, you can have these Nephilim who are more spiritual or more psychic kind of in nature. And then um, at one point there were Nephilim that were more physical in nature. How do you see the Nephilim as just beings that exist? Are you thinking of them as physical or are you thinking of them as, as more of a, a spiritual kind of being? So I, I tend to think of the Gregori, uh, Shemyaza, Azazel, Mazarak, and, and so on as, uh, as spirit as spiritual beings who maybe they incarnated, maybe they didn't incarnate. I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, I, I, I allow myself a lot of skepticism about my own gnosis. Um, so when something comes up and it's sort of like, okay, well, this is unprovable and it's not presenting actionable information, so I'll just make a note of it and then kind of set it aside rather than like hard believing or hard not believing in it. Like, you know, this information was presented, but, you know, there we go. Um, so I interact with, with the Grigori as beings that can be uh, invoked and called upon to teach us the things that they classically were said to have teach us. So, you know, for instance, in practice, um, one of the chants, you know, everybody I think that's ever cracked open a book on Wicca knows the echo, echo, azarak, echo, echo, zomelak chant, right? Um, and of course it comes, uh, it's in the original form I've ever seen it in was from a book called the black arts by JFC Fuller. Uh, from I think 1923. So echo, echo, azarak, echo, echo, zomelak, So I I loved it, but I I when I changed it to amazarak to match the name of the Gregori that Enoch gives us, who who taught sorcery, it was like a big like vo- like amplifier like like volume turned up like you got the combination right what can i tell you um so then that that chant sort of took on an additional dimension and and started uh being more useful to me than it what already was um even though the the chant is rooted in in uh a work of fiction but you know fiction by an occultist is not necessarily fiction but anyway (laughs) No, absolutely. And that was, that's something we, we were just talking about with Michelle Boulanger. Absolutely. That's sometimes that's the only platform to actually get your, your stuff across. Absolutely. Right. There you go. Uh, and so then we have, uh, the, the Nephilim, their offspring with humanity. Now I tend to think of this, uh, 
more in terms of the witch blood or the Sangreal. Uh, I, I was a member of the Sangreal Society, uh, uh, Bill Gray's uh, group, and, and was a member of a sodality that, that did his work. And so this ties into that idea that there's uh, a strand of, of holy blood or divine blood that runs through mankind. Does it run through all of mankind or only some of mankind? Is it equally distributed? Is it not equally distributed? Um, you know, we can we can trace most all of mankind to some startlingly small areas not that long ago. So, uh, you know, it, it would not be surprising if there is a literal witch blood that it is widely distributed perhaps more in, in some than others, or you know, some people holding different gifts than others. Um, but I, you know, one of my first exposures to witchcraft was through Paul Hewson, and he equated the 72, uh, he connected, I should say, not equated, the, the 72 spirits of the Ars Coatia with the Grigori in Mastering Witchcraft. And so... I, I wouldn't look for a textual connection, but there's certainly a thematic connection. And I, I work with that quite a bit. I work with that idea that there's uh, divine blood or, or a holy daemon that uh, is in the bloodstream that, that separates humanity out from other animals and things. Uh, which a lot of people don't like to think of, of as as humans as being fundamentally different. But I look around and I can't help but do so. Talking about Nephilim as actual beings that are in existence, or maybe were in existence, um, is something that a lot of people are uncomfortable with, and they, they especially at least in my in my uh, view. And I'd like to kind of, I don't know, t just kind of break that can open a little bit more and talk about Nephilim as spiritual energies or spirits that we can communicate with that um, are impacting us and have, have some sort of, of sway over humanity. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, a, do you think the Nephilim are real in the sense that um, they they still are having influence uh, over humanity? They still are part of our existence. I think the Nephilim, the Watcher Angels, or Rin, whatever you want to call them, uh, are real, exist, continue to linger both as energies, as disembodied beings, and occasionally as beings that take up human flesh to interact and teach from a different perspective. What What's their purpose, do you think? Oh, I think some have forgotten what that purpose is because being stuck here for so long is a little confusing. Um, but primarily to teach, to challenge, and to transform. Um, if they are the many born um, watchers and wanderers, uh, they are catalysts of, of wisdom, of change. And from your perspective, are these beings that we should be afraid of? No. Now, that's not to say that they aren't dangerous, sometimes challenging and difficult beings. Uh, you know, I know we avoid the word angel because in it's been very co-opted by Christianity, this, this concept of these beings that are that, that sometimes can take human faces but are other. And especially among Wiccans, pagans, and practitioners of witchcraft, saying angel or, or demon, there's this fear that it requires 
a belief in damnation and redemption in a kind of heaven and hell that is very Christian. And that's absolutely not the case. The, these things, these beings and our records of these beings are so much older than Christianity. They're older than Judaism. They go back to the very core of um, Western civilization, at least. I think oh, this is don't edit out the awkwardness because I'm, I am tra I am tracing a line of what I can under oath completely explain um, from my tradition. I've been in this position exactly once before on a Norwegian television show done on Jocidon where the mother-in-law of the Norwegian princess called me out for exactly what she saw about who I am and what I am and what I'm tied in with. I, I am totally here for a very yeah. real experience. So no, don't you worry because <laughs> this is difficult and it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's so hard to talk about this and I, I'm still trying to grapple with why. So, because I find it difficult to to bring up, and I know it's more than just, you, you know, of course, there's oathbound and you know things that I have, and and I I know, um, it's it's an awkward, I guess, just topic for a lot of people. But for me, it, it there's there's this almost like a fog there, and 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 how I can word things and form these things. So I I, I can appreciate any approach or or experience you're having while you're trying to do this thing that I, I struggle to do myself. Oh, yeah, no, not, not just a fog, but like there are literally uh, moments where I will start to try to explain something and my, my words will just lock up. Like I will literally have to like scramble in my brain to figure out some way to kind of like circumvent saying it as directly. And, and which is why I've done so much the art that I've done, like uh, my album Blood of Angels with the title song Blood of Angels, which tells a story, which is something that ties in with everything else that I write. And my fiction series, which also tells a story about these tribes of angels that are born and reborn in different ways and are here and are in some cases trying to figure themselves out and others all following their own agendas. And they are deathless and immortal, even though they pick up different human lives over time in order to help steer history and help steer people and, and watch and protect and sometimes fuck it up along the way because being here in this particular incarnated plane is by its nature sort of screwed up. Um, it is a very real part of my belief system and my tradition uh, I hope that the Keprians aren't going to wake out about that. Uh, I think it's about time for everybody to start talking about it openly, because at this point, after talking with people in the fairy tradition and folks who practice in different witchcraft traditions and the vampire community and all of it, finding that this is the dirty little secret of pretty much every group that I've ever been drawn to because they feel real, like they from listening to them, from seeing their magic, from watching them practice, I recognize a way of perceiving the world that is much more genuine, that has a greater depth. Uh, I would say we shouldn't be afraid of our truths simply because we've been raised in a culture that tells us that angels and demons are the province of Christianity, which we find not merely hypocritical, but frequently offensive. Maybe there's a reason why we're so offended by the way they present angels. Maybe it's personal. To me, the Nephilim or the Anunnaki, or what I tend to think of them as the Grigori, the Watchers, I guess that's the first word I learned about them in, in the witchcraft traditions. Uh, I really take the non-literal yet literal approach to them. I think I'm really influenced by the work of Grant Morrison, and I really fell in love with the idea of them not necessarily being physical in metal ships, extraterrestrials, as much as ultra-terrestrials. I think if there's an advanced alien race out there, 
Um, who's to say they're going to evolve in a way that we have biologically? And, you know, what would their society and what would their technology and what would their culture look like? You know, we don't know. I think it's, you know, boggles our mind to kind of relate to that. So I don't even know if they would have bodies in the way that we have. Kind of going back to folklore and occultism and witchcraft, I'm I'm always fascinated with the whole idea of the bodies of aether or the bodies of light or how consciousness can precipitate a material vehicle when needed, but then that material vehicle can kind of dissolve. And um, I often get really fascinated too by the lens of culture, which we look at things. You know, and I think a lot of our, our modern view of like ancient astronaut theory from a modern perspective, you know, is the lens we put over it. You know, I'm a big believer that our mythologies right now are like our Star Trek and Star Wars and it doesn't make them untrue, but I think that's the lens in which we look at things. And if we we're looking at them 3000 years ago, we might've used different descriptors and the whole idea of how language frames our reality. If we don't have the word for something, how do we really process it and how do we convey it to other people? And sometimes the limitations of language can limit our perceptions if we're not trained to look for something. And I think a lot of our witchcraft and our magic and our occultism is about trying to expand those perceptions and expand and challenge our languages and the way that we speak and the way we, we shape our reality, even just the perception of it. Um, so the Anunnaki to me, or the Grigori or the, you know, whatever we're thinking of as, as kind of descending from the heavens that sparked creation or sparked um, our evolution spiritually, I always go back to the kind of a, a pseudo-theosophical model. I think consciousness is always descending as biology is rising and there's different points where they intersect. So I think an alien consciousness has descended in bodies of light. Um, and how we teach it in the Temple of Witchcraft and how I think of it just personally as an occultist, uh, I think of the different, the Lords of Fire and the Lords of Form and, you know, that whole kind of descent of consciousness coming in, uh, particularly from Venus. That's a huge thing and kind of my personal view of it is, you know, were they literally on Venus or were they spiritually on Venus? But light descended from Venus and triggered space and time and, and perception and evolution from our human perspective. Um, so our mythology, the elder race, were essentially these beings of light that descended and they were the first gardeners. Um, I often relate them in the theosophical model to what occultists call Lemurians. Um, and I know people love that and hate that for different reasons, but the idea of the Lemurians in terms of consciousness were this elder race. And today we might think of that elder race as descended even deeper into the stratas of, of the planet and becoming what we think of as the fairy races. But when they first descended, there were this very alien light, alien consciousness. Um, and that kind of triggered the patterns of evolution for all creatures, you know, whether it be the mineral realm, the plant realm, but particularly in the animal realm. And, you know, through that evolution of animals, we get us. So I think, you know, from the oldest times and the forces of evolution was their first descent. I think we've been visited many times by alien consciousness. And I think each time is a catalyst or a trigger. I think the one we tend to think of when we think of Sumeria and the Anunnaki, or we think of the Nephilim and the Grigori and the Old Testament giants and the angels, you know, who found the, the daughters of men lovely. Um, I think that was one of the later descents. I think there have always been descents. There's always been descent of alien consciousness, and it's always triggered different shifts of evolution. Um, and I think we tend to look at them as godlike beings or alien beings or deities of some level because their consciousness is so different from ours. But I think we often dress them up in the symbols that make sense to us because we lack the vocabulary, the context from their perspective. So we have to put it into a human perspective. So we know from just, I don't know, being occultists who have studied and read books that there, uh, there's this rich history of humanity being visited by some sort of spirit from another dimension or another plane. Um, sometimes we talk about being, um, you know, abducted by fairies, right? And having missing time. That was a big, big part of the 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 world up until kind of the the mid 19th century and then there starts to be this change we really see this when um i'm gonna get really weird on you when when we hit when we when the like the the a-bomb happened like we really start to see that people weren't really seeing fairies anymore and they really weren't being abducted by them instead we get aliens right yeah becomes that part of the the culture so 
what I'm curious about as we're talking about the witch blood and, you know, I wrote this book series and one of the things that a lot of people have struggled with are that they're interpreting what I'm saying as you have to have this special thing in order to practice magic. And I, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that there there's a case that's been made multiple times that we have some sort of heavenly celestial um, uh, intervention that has happened to us in the occult. We talk about this just in our stories and our mythologies um, that made humanity different. And, um, and, you know, we, we can talk about the Nephilim as an example of witches being different amongst, you know, other uh, uh, primitive people at the time. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of ways to interpret that, but it all comes back to this idea that we're being visited or we're being, you know, these beings are coming from somewhere else that isn't necessarily a terrestrial place. And I know that that's uncomfortable for people. Um, but the same thing can be said about like the, the two a day and, you know, the, the Celtic gods and, um, a lot of gods and a lot of spirits from different places, you know, who ruled after there were beings before them and, you know, so on and so forth. And, and these gods came from the sky or they came from, you know, uh, an opening in the earth, you know, these, these, so we've got these, these stories of beings from other places coming in and mucking with humanity. And I'm out of, I'm at the verge for me where I I'm wondering how much of that relates and, and correlates to the idea of the Grigori and the, the watchers and, and our occultism and what that would mean. So if we're, if we are being visited and our, our species is somehow being guided or influenced by these other beings, what does that mean like for us? Like as occultists, but also as people. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a really good question. Um, so one of the things that I, I've talked about on like probably 90% of the podcasts that I've done where, you know, you're asked to give your origin story <laughs> um, is an experience I had when I was five years old. Uh, I was I was on the playground. I looked I was looking down at the sand. And then I looked up, but I wasn't looking up from, it was as if the whole playground and the whole earth was down at my feet, like a picture. It was like, I looked up and away from the three dimensional world into somewhere else. And from that moment on, I started to have these experiences for the next year or so, uh, where I would like everything would freeze and I couldn't move my own body. And, and sometimes I would, if there were other people in the room, it's like they would be gone. But there were these other beings, these sort of very tall shadowy beings uh, that were there discussing me and, and, and so on and so forth. And that sparked my interest in magic that was something that happened that it was like i can't let go of this it's 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 like the matrix it's that little splinter in your brain that you can't let go of um and so i totally get uh that you know i that that this could be seen as abduction by fairies or, or aliens or tied into that kind of visitation. It's a different type of visitation, but people could interpret it in all sorts of ways. Um, I guess, you know, what it means, you have to look for the actionable, um, and what it means for me was just very simply that there was more than what we were being told. You know, we're, we're, we're on a play and there are people backstage or there are things going on backstage <laughs> that if you just peek around the corner of the facade, you can catch a glimpse of and maybe learn something from. And so that sparked my interest in magic. But I do, I think the reason that people get wary and, and why in the 
the magical community and the witchcraft community, there's a very small crossover with the paranormal community and the alien community is that we're kind of like, well, what does this mean in terms of practical application? Whereas some people are kind of like, well, what does this mean for my belief system? How can I adjust a belief system around this? And that's a question that's never interested me. Like, I've never thought the Grigori were sort of like, they are there, so we should create a religion around them. Um, <laughs> uh, or, you know, aliens are there, so we should devote, you know, tons and tons of time to developing hard beliefs about this. So for me, I'm always a pragmatist. And the answer of, like, what does this mean is it means only as much as we find things useful or they tell us things firmly that we didn't already know. Um, so those, those are sort of my rules for any kind of spirit contact. And uh, like I said uh, in, a, in an earlier interview with you, I, I myself get things all the time and then I have to look at it and be like, well, does it meet these criteria? If not, then, you know, cool, put it in a book. And if it ever becomes actionable or tells me something I didn't already know, then I can look at it and be like, aha, you know, this is useful. But until then, it just becomes some something that happened. The first question that I asked myself when I when I heard the other side of it, like you know, the Nephilim are these like dark, evil things, and they came in from elsewhere, and they, they were doing horrible things to humanity. What if what if we're all remembering the same thing from different perspectives of experience, different fragments of it? So, all right, angels. What do we what do we mean when we say angel? Something that is more than human, not quite a god, bigger than a human being. Um, okay, they can take human form. Biblical stuff tells us that. Maybe memories tell us that. Oh, hell, you know what? All right. What if there were beings that were more made of energy than they were of flesh? They existed on a plane of existence, a realm, a completely different place. Let's just call it the city of silver and mist. Maybe they don't remember where it was themselves. They just know that it ended, and they couldn't be there anymore. They didn't exist in a way that was anchored to anything like being alive was, and they started to drift. And they needed somewhere to be, some way to exist to not just lose themselves in experience, some Incarnation, um, our experience of each individual life, is a way of anchoring ourselves to time, anchoring ourselves to a certain experience. So let's say that there were these beings that had to figure out some way to incarnate, and this was the only game in town. Being human was the only place to be at the time, from wherever they found themselves. And maybe they figured out how to, either incarnating directly in people, attaching them to people themselves to people but in one way or another becoming involved in this this world that we find ourselves on only they have a different experience of death and rebirth they don't really die when their physical body dies if they've taken a physical body because they're this much older longer energetic thing and maybe incarnating is really hard because they're made up completely differently, but they have to find some way to make it work if they want to not just sort of drift and get lost between what they used to know and how things around them changed. 
And maybe some of them have a purpose and maybe some of them just really want to have an experience. I, I know so much of our, our Western metaphysics tell us that the journey of progress is from, from flesh to spirit. Flesh is automatically bad, like the dualism that we've gotten from Zoroastrianism mainly. Uh, flesh is bad, and so you're, you are striving to become a spiritual being. So it, it seems completely backwards for something that would be spirit to want to be in a body. I think it's more complicated than that. I think that there's a cycle. I think beings that start off as earthly and physical go through a process and, and kind of ascend to something that's different, something that we'll think, we'll say higher, even though there's a valuation in that word that I think is, is false. And then spend some time being an energy being and kind of traipsing around and being free of flesh and stuff. But after a while, you, you miss having a good fuck, eating chocolate, kissing, touching. So what do you do? You come back and experience things as a physical being for a while again. I think it's a cycle. I think we go from spirit to flesh and flesh to spirit. And part of the story of the angels or the Nephilim can be found in looking at that cycle. I think and that's whether or not, beautiful. Yeah, and whether or not we, we think of it as, as aliens, you know, are they aliens? If they're not from around here, I guess by definition, yes. Mm-hmm. But if they've been around here for 10,000 years, 15,000 years, maybe since the end of the last ice age or before then, do they qualify as human? I mean, at what point, once you've immigrated, do you become a naturalized citizen? Right, right, <laughs> right, right. And That's I say that with tongue in cheek only because these are questions I've asked myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. connection. It just says this was in the days when the Nephilim were around. So we can generally assume, just from the vague information we have in the text, that these were great warriors, men of, of renown and fame, um, and it doesn't even talk about whether we should view them negatively or positively. There are... Hello, witches. I just wanted to take a quick break out of the show to tell you about two very important ongoing projects of mine, The Mystic Dream and The Mystic Dream Academy. The Mystic Dream is a spiritual marketplace for all things magical and esoteric, and has been serving our local community here in the California Bay Area for over 30 years. Recently, due to COVID, we had to move from our physical store to an online-only format and have launched a new and improved website with enhanced shopping features. If you are looking for witchcraft supplies, signed books, handmade candles, and bath and body, or you are looking for a reliable place for crystals, check out themysticdream.com. You can also find modern witch brand products like ritual soaps, condition oils, spell kits, and more, all made by yours truly, only at themysticdream.com and modernwitch.com. Our inventory is constantly updating and new products are added weekly. Again, that's themysticdream.com. If you are looking for a safe and secure place to learn witchcraft, psychic development, spiritual healing arts, and other metaphysical practices online, then you should check out what we are doing over at themysticdreamacademy.com. An online extension to our popular in-person class series, The Mystic Dream Academy is home to the Witch Power Masterclass, which is modeled after my best-selling Witch Power series, Black Rose Witchcraft, which is a 13-month course in traditional witchcraft that over 500 people have already joined, and A Course in Modern Conjure, which is a year-long study in American folk magic and contemporary conjure taught by Chaz Bogan. Use code MAGISTER, that's M-A-G-I-S-T-E-R, at checkout to get your first month of Black Rose free. Once again, that's themysticdreamacademy.com. Link in the show notes. All right, let's get back to this episode. So I think the the kind of waves of visitation, I think some of them really predate 
um, even the evolution of humans. So I think like the first descent, you know, kind of really triggered you know, our biological evolution, whether it was, you know, the meteorite landing that is the, the first cells or the first proteins, or the first viruses, however people want to look at it, that kind of triggered that primordial soup and that chain of evolution. I think that was a type of visitation that is, I won't say intentional from another civilization, but I think it has intention behind it, whether it be divinity or whether it be from a individual consciousness. Then as we kind of look through history, you know, that start, starts everything. That starts cellular life, if you want to think of it as that first marker. Then I think the evolutionary stream that kind of brings across hominins and brings in, you know, human forms and, you know, from the great apes into all the different types of evolutions of humans that are not just necessarily homo sapiens. And there's so much being discovered right now about, you know, pre and concurrent human civilizations and races of people that were not homo sapiens and how they interbred and how they developed us, developed with us. And, you know, we kind of have that school book story of, you know, homo sapiens came along and wiped out all the other species. And we're discovering now that's probably not as true as, as it is. Like so much history now we're discovering is, you know, how we learned it in school is not the way it actually probably was. Um, so I think that's an aspect of it. I think a huge part of a shift of consciousness. And I can't even say it's something that we can point to and say, you know, here's a Stone Age monument to it, or here's something that we can look at. Um, to me, is fire. The idea of humans being able to kind of consciously harness fire, I think is a huge part of, you know, our evolutionary steps, but also the descent of, it's literally the descent of light sparking matter and kind of transforming and, and creating a revolution in, in how we live, how we behaved, and how civilization was able to start. I think that's a huge marker. I think if we look to all the mythologies of the civilization starters, whether it be the seven rishis in India, whether we think of it as the lords of civilization and theosophy, whether we think of it as Thoth and Osiris from the Egyptian mythologies, but the idea of humanity sort of being given technology, or we think of the Gregorian, the, the watchers from the Old Testament, the idea of agriculture, that marker of agriculture. And now that we're finding that agriculture is probably a lot older than we thought it was, you know, we tend to think of agriculture going back to city-states and Sumeria. And I think that was probably just a, a fruiting of it, a regeneration of it. But if we go back to things like Gobekli Tepe, you know, it seems pretty obvious that they had agriculture at that time period too. And what preceded that? So I think, you know, the technology of agriculture, um, a big part, one of my earliest teachers, I had a Hindu teacher who was an astrology teacher, and she strangely taught Western astrology. Her background was, um, and she was a white American woman, but she lived in an ashram and really was deeply involved in, in more of the Hindu culture and systems. Um, and she talked about how the perfection of astrology just seems to kind of pop up, you know, and that it's such a perfect system. It is inherently divine and it's either received through inspiration or it was given. She was a big believer and, you know, even not coming from a witchcraft or occult background, she was a big believer that humanity received it from a far intelligent race that, you know, was not of this world. So that was one of the first little seeds I got early on in my 20s of like, oh, serious people, you know, take this as a serious idea. So. I think some of our systems of occultism and, and that type of work. I am a huge believer, and I know it's not popular today. And, and in the end, the literalness of it is not something I feel like I always have to um, defend, although I do literally believe in it. But I'm a big believer in the great flood mythologies um, and the idea that there was, a, you know, what, what are we calling it now, a um, pre-cataclysmic seafaring race. You know, the, the uh, idea whether it was a, a nation you know, in the Atlantic Ocean, an island that we call Atlantis, or whether it was people on the periphery of all the continents that are now sunk because the water levels rose. But I do believe we had some type of advanced civilization that, you know, Gobekli Tepe comes out of um, that predates what we think of as modern culture. And how did that come about? And where did that come about? And does that play into one of these visitations, whether it be you know, entities of spirit and bodies of light, or whether it be physical manifestations or precipitating their own physical bodies out of that. But I think that whole shift, whether it was a comic strike that, you know, shatters the, the ice, ice plates and uh, ends up causing a great shift and a great flood, or whether something else happened that we just haven't quite figured out yet. Um, but I think that's one of the visitation points. I think there was something kind of going on there. And that's why we have a lot of myths of those times of the flood and the giants and the angels. You know, we might not have all the details right right now, but I think there's a deep truth to something going on there. And I think people continue to get um, contact or communion, not necessarily full visitations, but my first experience in, in really being exposed to aliens and extraterrestrials, flying saucers, unidentified UFO type stuff, 
um, were from other witches. And so I, I believe that there's a component of that experience that is perception and is psychic based. And a lot of people, for lack of a better word, that are you know normal and don't care about these things, that it goes outside of their perception, so they don't quite see it. But when you look at like one of my first witchcraft teachers, you know, saw a flying saucer and, and thought that that was crazy, but you know, nobody else around her saw it. But to this day, she really says that you know that was a physical thing that happened to her, and that sort of led her into witchcraft. And another witchcraft teacher that felt she was visited by aliens. Um, you know, when we look at the whole Whitley Stryber experience of it, you know, he kind of comes out of that, at least the last time I had contact with him, that it was a very kind of shamanic experience in many ways, or how I'd call it as a shamanic experience, but, you know, a visitation that changed consciousness. It doesn't always have to be a life-changing civilization-oriented visit, although I think those have happened. I do think it still happens on an individual level time and time again. With your experiences, do you feel that we've we've been pushed back in that in that way of being punished do you feel that like we did have something and it was taken from us or do you feel that um it's just a natural course of of kind of ebb and flow of of consciousness and information and evolution i i am never one to look at any type of divine punishment or outside punishment um i when i look at the cycles of nature in the greater scope of time i think there's always daylight, dawn and daylight. There's always sunset and darkness. There's always winter and summer. You know, I think it's the same thing of saying like, you know, it got cold in December. Are we being punished for that? You know, did something bad happen? I think they just happen in such large time scales. It's hard for us as modern humans to recognize that. And I think in those times of darkness or night or winter, or however, whatever symbol you want to phrase it as, um, I think we lose things. I think we forget things. I think we become disconnected in that darkness. I don't think it's out of punishment, though. I think it's a natural evolution, just like, you know, a plant gets cut down and then grows back again in the spring, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily have the same branches and, and it's not going to come back the same way. It has to almost start over. So I think human, human civilization has probably been cut down and started over many times, but it, I see it much more like the reaping of a field than I do of a, a divine punishment. Um, I've never been necessarily one to go deep about... Um, the war aspect of it. I know that's the biblical story or the, you know, the apocryphal biblical story of it. Um, I often kind of go back to the whole Atlantean occult story, you know, and, and I know people both love and like to rip on it. Um, but for me, you know, the whole tale of Atlantis and the whole imagery of Atlantis, it's almost like the Western Shambhala. And in, in my work and with our community, we do a lot of stuff um, in redeeming what we call the water city, because I found that to be a, a really great mythic way of kind of looking at it. But there's this sense of, of abuse of technology. There's a sense of abuse of environment. There's this sense of imbalance. You know, I kind of always go back to the Crowleyan view of the justice card. You know, we often have a very human view of justice. I don't know if justice is human. Um, I really love that term of adjustment. You know, there's this constant working of the, the mechanics of the universe or the rhythms and the cycles of the universe to redress balance. But it's not a static balance. Things are not always going to be rosy all the time. And, and that's good. It's the idea that it's a dynamic balance. So things are going to swing into winter and summer. Things are going to swing into light and darkness. They're not necessarily good or evil or reward and punishment. They're just the cycle of regeneration. If you don't have those ebbs and flows, then things can't constantly renew. So I think you know, in the cycle of the great ages, I'm really fascinated with uh, the platonic year and how we cycle back every 2000 years or so, you know, through the zodiac signs. It's interesting that in kind of our current dating of what we think the great flood could be and looking back to, you know, tales of Egypt and Sumer and all that was probably the tail end of the age of Leo. You know, and Leo's opposite side is Aquarius. So Aquarius is the water bearer. And there's a lot of mythologies that say, you know, the world ends in alternating fires and waters. And, um, you know, Leo would definitely be the fire. So it's interesting that in the age of Leo, it's shadow, you know, the water bearer. And I know Aquarius isn't a water sign, but just the archetypal imagery of it is the guy who pours out the jug of water, which sounds very flood-like, um, is kind of that, that mythology to it. So I think there's natural mechanisms of regeneration. I'm also super into the yugas, you know, the, the Hindu perspective of how we start in a golden age. Um, and it's a little less of an organic model because you have this really long golden age and then it sort of descends into a silver and then it descends down into a bronze and it descends down into the lead or the Kali Yuga and kind of rises back up again. Um, and there was a book and you're going to have to forgive me because I'm horrible at remembering the author's name, but it was um, 
a book by Yogananda's teacher, and he had alternate math to the yugas, because right now the way people accept the yugas is they're very cosmic numbers, um, almost like meaningless to human lives. But this new math system that he proposed um, really kind of plots out the timeline of human evolution. And it's really hopeful. I know we live in a time right now, particularly, that's not very hopeful. Um, but it's a very hopeful model because it basically says the bottom rung was the Dark Ages Europe. And we've been on a slow ascent ever since. Doesn't mean that still a lot of that wasn't the Dark Ages, but it was the upswing side of it. And by the time we get to the Renaissance, we're kind of transitioning the ages. So sadly, we're not on the cusp of, in that system of a great shift of the ages. We're not on a cusp of, you know, boom, tomorrow it's gonna to be great, or 50 years from now it's gonna be great, or 100 years it's gonna be great. It's a, a slow upward arc. Um, so in looking at these different time systems, there was a, another one that I got into, um, and again, I'd have to look up the name, but it was called The Nine Waves of Creation was the popular book on it. And it kind of looked at the Mayan math um, in the Mayan calendar and kind of related the biggest cycles to evolution, you know, and, and the basic premise was is from the center of our galaxy, these waves of information um, that keep getting faster and faster reach the earth and they correspond to different periods of evolution in the biological model. But the interesting thing is, is that they're concurrent. So just because the second wave comes doesn't mean the first wave goes away. It means both of those waves are simultaneously in the space and kind of the end of the Mayan calendar a little bit before it from the way modern people are, are denoting it. And interesting fact of, um, you know, there's one interpretation that says the end of the Mayan calendar due to our rectification of the, the old calendars actually should be uh, in 2020. And it sort of feels that way right now, I, I will say, compared to 2012. Um, but in his math, right around 2012, a little bit before that, the ninth and final wave kind of comes through. So we have access to all this, these different fields of information. So it's more of an upward swing than a cyclical swing. But I think there's no necessarily punishment to it. I think it's, I think that's a very human concept because we ultimately don't want to have responsibility. So it's more pleasing to us to think, you know, well, if we get out of control, something will take care of it for us. Um, I don't think things are that easy, even if we're talking about ultra-terrestrial, extraterrestrial civilizations. I don't think they're necessarily all wise and going to come in and stop us or take over. Um, but I'm particularly not a, a fan of the war metaphor. I think the, the kind of biblical war metaphor, regardless of when it took place, um, was written down in, in our time of Aries. You know, so of course, anybody living in the age of Aries is going to frame things in terms of war and conflict and battle and um, if they truly were this ultra-terrestrial civilization, how could we really be making war with them at that level? But uh, it just doesn't ring true as much as the mishandling of information. I think even today, you know, we look at things and, and tend to think, you know, there must be some shadow cabal that is running everything and causing the world to be so awful as it is. But I think the truth really is, like Alan Moore has a great quote that's just about the truth is much more scary, that there's nobody at the wheel. And I think even in times past, there could be times of great chaos, great influx of information, great influx of um, spiritual technology, physical technology. And I think we're not always mature enough to handle it and it goes off the rails. But I don't think it's divine retribution or you know punishment. But that's totally my bias know. as an ex-Catholic, so who knows? Right, right. No, I love it. No, that's that's that was that's a big thing. Uh, so when we think about the idea of Atlantis, because I do want to hit on this because no one's talked about this yet. So can you share with us, uh, but basically the story of Atlantis from where you're coming from? And I realize that could be like a huge thing. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. Um, but if you could share with us that story. I think that would be a really good touch point to help me get to my next thing, if you don't mind. Sure, absolutely. So the the theosophical model on the, the great ages and the great lands um, sounds really dated to us, you know, and I think when we look at them as a story of mythology rather than a biological or geological truth, it can be really helpful for us, just like we can look in the East at things like Shambhala, you know, we look at that as a teaching story that may or may not be true, but we don't get hung up on the, the geology or the, the physical location because nobody's found Shambhala yet. Most Buddhists believe in something of Shambhala. Um, so the water city or Atlantis, you know, in the, the theosophical teachings, there's every age, great age, and it's like a seven step process of descent and then rising back up, has like a homeland and has what they refer to as a race and, you know, our lovely Victorian era and, and really more about a stream of consciousness. Um, than physical people. And each stream of consciousness evolves beings, and some of them are material and some of them are immaterial. 
And in this tale, by the time we get to, I believe it is the fourth age, is the age of Atlantis. And Atlantis is described much like Plato does, and that's probably our most historic um, take on Atlantis, is a great island, a great island nation that's beyond the pillars of Hercules, which we interpret today as the Atlantic Ocean, although there's a lot of interpretation today that it might have been somewhere in the Mediterranean, um, or it might be someplace that is now dry, or it might be someplace that is completely underwater that we would not think an island would be. Um, but essentially it was an island nation or a coastal nation, but a civilization that rose to great heights. Um, and they became greatly civilized. They had great mental powers. They had great psychic abilities or what we might think of as magical abilities because they were said to be in greater tune uh, with the world and the forces of nature. And through their city-states and through their, we have a very romantic view of, of their culture and their government, which I don't know is necessarily true because, again, we're relating to it through our age. So we might see them in terms of kings and queens and temples, but I definitely believe that they're adepts on a magical level, teaching evolution and transformation and magic. Um, and the belief was, is they reached a great height, like many cultures and civilizations do, and then they started to decay. They started to descend. Um, and in their height and in their power and their desire to hold on to that height and power, um, they either abused particular technologies. Um, and a lot of people in the New Age traditions will talk about how they abused crystal technology on some level. Um, or they had some kind of abuse of genetic technology, which gets into some more of the biblical stories and the giants and the kind of creatures that are out there and why, why we might describe the world as debased at that time. Um, or they misused magical powers or psychic abilities on some level, but did so on such a scale. And the idea was that Atlantis was positioned at such a place in the world that there was an intersection of many of what we might call ley lines or energy lines and the level of imbalance at that particular place imbalanced much the world. Um, and the response or the reaction, the adjustment that the world needed to go through was the sinking of Atlantis um, to kind of remove that imbalance. And as they did, these people fled to the corners of the world, but particularly we think that they would travel to the Yucatan, to the what we think of as the Mayans today, to the British Isles, to Egypt, to Samaria, to the parts of the Middle East, and try to work with their native populations and kind of reestablish their mysteries in different forms. So occultists look at that as kind of like the root of the perennial tradition or, you know, why there's so many similar things archetypally, but has so many different cultural and linguistic expressions. Um, so when we look at it, it's really a story of, of, from a spiritual level, of abuse and redemption. You know, the whole tale of Shambhala in the East is about withdrawal. You know, it's always there, but you can't quite reach it. You have to aspire to a certain level and the masters will let you in. Where the Western story has always been about separation, whether it be getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden, you know, whether it be the fall of Lucifer, whether it be the fall of the angels of the Grigori and, you know, the Anunnaki and, and the Nephilim, you know, or whether it be this idea of sin casting you out. You know, in the West, we've kind of internalized this story of exile. We've internalized the story of separation. And I think the, the story of Atlantis, the story of the water city, and the idea that will, all the mythologies in the New Age world, are, it will rise again, which I don't know if it will literally rise again. I don't even know if it was necessarily physical, although I think it was. Um, but I think the consciousness rise again, rises again because it needs to be redeemed. And I think a lot of our problems in America right now, particularly, are part of that archetypal story of abuse and excess and just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Um, so I feel like this is a very Atlantean time, but I think the potential tale would be to redeem it, you know, and I don't know if we're doing such a great job at that. But I think because a lot of people shit on that mythology and, and don't think it has anything to teach them, it's hard to look at that redemption factor from an occult point of view. So it's been a part of my work and I'd say the last 10 years since we started doing a lot of our retreats. Uh, we've been doing these retreats on the elements, and we really kind of framed the elemental temples in terms of the Atlantean and Lemurian story and how we might be seeking redemption and healing through it. Um, but I think part of the abuse or part of the, the misuse of technology, well, where did that come from? You know, much of the tales, much of the intuitive information, you know, refers to that descent of light or descent of consciousness, descent of alien or other consciousness to a people, maybe perhaps before they were ready for it, you know, and that... that quantum leap doesn't always give a quantum leap of maturity.
Oh no, it looks like it's time to wrap it up for this episode, but there is more Modern Witch if you know where to look. Check out modernwitch.com for the latest happenings across all platforms like the blog, YouTube, Patreon, and social media. There is always something happening, like my new show on Instagram, Modern Witch After Dark, where I get to talk about weird shit like aliens and mushrooms with some of today's most influential occultists. Did you know that Modern Witch also offers a subscription box through Patreon, where in addition to handmade magical products, patrons also get access to monthly workshops and exclusive Discord server? Did you know that I host free movie nights on Netflix and YouTube for all Modern Witch followers and listeners? Yeah, Modern Witch is way more than just the podcast, and our community is growing fast. Follow and find out what you've been missing by visiting modernwitch.com, and I'll see you there. at work here dark incomprehensible forces on the next episode we so you don't believe we've had physical experiences with these these beings you think it's all a spiritual shamanic place no um okay let's, let's, let's I, do it. I don't necessarily believe that they have descended in little metallic ships and have technology that we would recognize as technology um, but I do believe that we've had incarnate interactions, or I do believe that we can interface with them in an in-between plane that is very physical. <laughs>